following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. I have a uh, my set of notes here that I'm going to use for this morning, and then I also have... Are we online, John? We are live. Okay, so you're all online going to see our chaos over here. Uh, we're going to get it organized quickly. I'm going to give this out to uh, everybody that I can. I have a little bit of a shortfall probably. Dan, what I want to do is make sure that all of the young people who are joining us from Jansen's class get that, and then everybody else can get one too if there's extra. So David and John and Selah should be in here. And uh, boy, Darius, it's good to see you. I've seen a two-dimensional version of him uh, all summer. <laughs> now he's back in person. That's wonderful. Very good. Move-in week this past week, I guess, huh? Yeah. I don't, don't, oh, don't, oh, yes, I know. I've, I've taken groups of students to Target on those certain days, and it is a madhouse over there. Yeah, yeah. Loads of carts just loaded with home goods, and yeah, <laughs> very good. I asked uh, Dan if he would pass out a little study guide sheet that I prepared for our lesson today. We're studying the theology of the cross, the doctrine of atonement, as it has been called, and um, so when he gets back around, if you don't have one, he can get one of those for you. Um, and that's just two sides, and uh, I really created that for the young people who are joining us today, but I thought, well, I'll just print out some more, and then uh, you guys have uh, your pens or pencils. Uh, you know, we're getting back into the swing of school, right, and uh, the fall and all that, so we might as well get our worksheets out and all that sort of thing. I'm not a real fan of uh, fill-in-the-blanks, by the way, as you know, but a worksheet like this may be helpful. And all the notes are available online. I haven't printed out the whole package of them. There are 12 pages thus far, but those are available on the website at fbcaa.org slash docs. And uh, especially young folks, I'd like you to jot your name at the top and uh, turn that in to me at the end so I can take a look at that. See, if, uh, see how you did and see how I did. So let's have a uh, prayer. Before I do that, though, are, are there any matters uh, concerning which you would like me to pray this morning? I did just receive wonderful news that a young fellow, Trey, for whom I had been asked to pray, is uh, doing better. Thank God for that. He had a very bad accident. <clears throat> Not his fault. But uh, he's coming around, spending a long time in the hospital. We uh, are grateful. Who else has something for us to uh, pray about? We uh, remember Jeremy Wickert has some house issues going on. Any uh, new news on that since yesterday? Nothing? Okay. Does it look like the, the potential buyer is just backing out entirely? For sure or maybe? Maybe. Okay. Well, we'll pray for that potential. Oh. Do they just want to continue paying rent then? Or 
They just want to leave. Oh, no. I said, tell them that's not allowed. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to pray about that situation. Anybody else? We've got a nice full house in Sunday school this morning. This is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have before us a couple of matters, one of thanks and one of intercession, and then our study before us as well. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for the blessing of hearing this good news about a young man who had an accident and was injured but is coming around. We thank you so much for that. And uh, the contact that uh, we have with him is very limited, but we are able from afar to rejoice that you have answered our request from a week ago, and uh, we are grateful. Father, thank you for that. May you continue to work in him and help him to make progress. We pray for uh, Jeremy and the situation with the house where the uh, rent-to-buy kind of uh, arrangement seems to be falling through. We ask that you might change that circumstance or prepare some new person to come along and uh, snatch up that home for themselves and uh, maybe uh, turn it into some blessing instead of uh, a difficulty. Lord, we uh, commend our missionaries to you this morning. While they minister this morning, we do as well, and we are hoping to be able to increase our knowledge of the Word of God and this doctrine of the cross and also not only our knowledge but our appreciation for what great things you have done for us. As we recount those to one another and to the next generation, I pray that they will up, uh, take that up and that they will embrace it and be uh, eager to pass it on to yet the next one as, uh, as time permits them to do that. And uh, Lord, we pray too for those that are in uh, deep, deep trials this morning across the globe, especially our friends in the nation of Afghanistan, we remember them, and we pray for wisdom for our leaders, uh, for resolve, for courage, that they might not trade dishonor for courage and face both the dishonor and the negative consequences that come with it. So we want to thank you for uh, answering and hearing our prayers this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, we'll have more, much more to pray about later this morning. We are teaching on the doctrine of the cross. If you have your notes, you can follow along with those. If you just have your Bible and your study sheet there, please feel free to uh, use that. Uh, last time, we went over the problems solved by the cross. The problems solved by the cross. Number one, and that's just going to review, the wrath of God against sin. The Bible says in John 3.36 that uh, if you believe in the Son, then you'll have life. If you don't believe, then the wrath of God abides upon you. And that wrath, we said, does abide upon the sinner, not just upon the sin that the sinner does. So it's a very uh, kind of strict thing, if you will, a very, in a sense, unpleasant, but we don't shy away from unpleasant truths. They are just what the Scripture says that they are. So that's the first problem that the cross solves. The second is enmity, uh, enmity with God because of rebellion against him. So God sets himself against those who set themselves against him, and they become his enemies. And that is uh, an apt description for us. You know, if while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. 
So we were enemies of God, and sin causes that enmity, that, that separation. In fact, Isaiah 59, I think it is verse 7, I'm not sure if we looked at that verse the last time, but it talks about this idea, idea and I'll just see if I can find that verse. I have it in mind, but I'll find the address for you. Isaiah 59, um, verse 2, actually. It's not verse 7, it's 2. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So there's theological idea of that. Then thirdly, bondage. Thirdly, bondage is a problem solved in the cross, the bondage of sin, uh, that we are enslaved to sin. The far worse kind of slavery that there is is that kind of slave uh, slavery. And uh, we think we dealt with this to some extent when we talked about liberation theology and its latest manifestation, which is called critical race theory, you might recall, that uh, liberation theology teaches uh, that, that Christian salvation has to do with liberation from some oppressor, uh, some class-based kind of oppression. And uh, in fact, Kendi, Ibrahim uh, uh, Kendi uh, criticizes Christianity's, those who in Christianity believe in a savior theology because he says there, it's really not a savior theology, it's a liberation theology. And uh, by this means, you know that he's setting himself directly against God and his word by saying that. Uh, the slavery that we are talking about is not Egyptian slavery of the Israelites. It's not our slavery to masters. It's not the 99% enslaved to the 1%. It's not the, uh, the, the, the serfs or the working class enslaved to the, uh, to the um, whatever they call it. Uh, I forget now but the upper class. It's a slavery that we all have to sin that is the issue in Christianity. And that bondage to sin is answered in the cross of Christ. Uh, Jesus told us whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The reason that people don't recognize this is that they, they have a kinship with the Pharisees who, when Jesus said that to them, you recall what their answer was? I mean, we've never been enslaved to anyone. You know, not recognizing their... They're being occupied and oppressed by the Romans. That, that would certainly, they should recognize that, but uh, that's not even the issue. The issue is that they're enslaved to sin and they don't realize it. They kind of bumble along in life not realizing that they're you know, enslaved this whole time and not free like they think they are, and they just don't recognize it. Uh, I think number four, guilt. Fourth is guilt. Guilt is not an emotion, we said. Guilt is an objective fact of, of the state of a person. Like in a courtroom, you can be guilty but not feel guilty, remember? Cold-hearted criminals don't feel guilty. I don't know that... <laughs> it, it, it doesn't dawn on me all the time just how cold-hearted some people can be. Um, I uh, had a situation, not, it was not the same as what your brother is going through, but uh, when we moved to the parsonage, we rented out our, our old home for a while, and uh, eventually we sold it, thankfully. It's gone. It's done. Um, but uh, the, one of the fellows who he had contracted to purchase the home on a land contract, and he stopped paying. 
And it was kind of like this thing with this eviction moratorium, you know, it just forever goes on and on. Well, it, did, it wasn't an eviction moratorium then, but it was like, you know, go to the court and uh, you have to, uh, the guy doesn't have an attorney, so come back next month with an attorney and then come back the next month. And it's like, you know, well, all these months he's, I'm paying property taxes and he's not paying. And he sat there in, this, in the hallway in the court building and basically looked straight at me and said, I, I already paid you and basically you owe me. Like, I owe him my house. That mentality is, he really believes that. And he doesn't realize that he is in deep sin in thinking that. Now, he made an agreement that he's going to pay every month and pay the down payment and then pay every month to pay until he pays off the house. And that mentality is just one manifestation of the cold-hearted, no guilt feeling, but guilt. And, uh, you know, the court did agree with me eventually that he had to go. And so he was guilty even though he didn't feel guilty. So guilt is one of those areas where we do have guilt because we have sinned. Whether we feel it or not, we have. If you keep the whole law but stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it, right? Uh, we know whatever the law says, Romans 3.19, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Okay. Now, we dealt with a side issue here, which is also important, which has to do with the transferability of guilt. Is guilt transferable from father to son or son to father? The answer is no. Christian theology doesn't allow that kind of transference. Uh, Judeo-Christian theology doesn't allow it. Um, and then the fifth problem that is solved by the cross is death. Death. If you want to jot that down in your notes there, every human is going to face physical death unless the Lord returns. We had uh, I received just after men's prayer yesterday two text messages on my phone. Two people had passed away that we had been praying for. One was uh, up in Howell, not uh, directly in the church, but a brother of one of the members of the church there. Uh, we prayed for him on Wednesday. He passed away. He was out doing yard work a week ago and then discovered to have stage 4 cancer, and now he's gone already. Yeah. Um, and then uh, our dear friend Carol at uh, American House, she passed away yesterday morning as well after a very long and difficult week for her at the hospice uh, care facility. I wouldn't say difficult in the sense of struggling and severe pain, but just, you know, being in bed and unable to move and communicate really too much and all. So anyway, death. Uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And that death includes spiritual death as well as physical death and further eternal death. Eternal death. So really there are three, three problems underneath the subheading of death, but you don't have to write those down on your, your sheet. We're just dealing with the, the, the kind of big headings. Death is the, one of those problems. Now, I think we looked at last time that we shifted gears from the problems. Now we're moving into the solution. And the solution often is spoken of under the heading of atonement. Atonement. Uh, 
and it, I found it interesting that the word atonement in the New King James and the ESV is only used in the Old Testament. <laughs> you think, wait a minute, how's that possible? Uh, mostly in the Pentateuch, even in the first five books. Uh, sometimes I've heard the uh, the word atonement uh, oversimplified to mean at one meant. Have you heard that before? At one meant. Well, what that does when you when you do that, what it's saying is that God makes man at one with Him. But that's a that's a that's not a good way to explain the meaning of a word by breaking it down into its very, um, pro, how can I say, happy providential spelling in English, because it's not spelled like that at all in Greek. Um, so it's not at one mint. Actually, at one mint is uh, the idea of the doctrine of reconciliation, right? Then two have been made into one. The two opposing parties have been brought together. So their atonement is used and oversimplified into the doctrine of reconciliation, as in Romans 5.11. In Romans 5.11, the scripture uses this word, at least in the uh, King James Version, which I'm not using. I'm using the New King James, as most of you know. Uh, in Romans 5.11, it says, and not only that, but we also re- rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Your King James has atonement there, doesn't it? If you have that. Does anybody see that in there? Does anybody have the King James they're looking at? Yes, sir, got it. Yep, so the atonement. It's actually the idea of reconciliation. In theology, here's, here's the operative definition that I use for this. The, the word atonement is commonly used as an umbrella word a big word, an umbrella word to cover or to, to consider all of the aspects of the cross work of Christ under one big word. And so that under the word atonement will come all the different words and ideas that we're about to talk about just now and probably in the next session, next Sunday school class as well. Okay, so it's a large word that contains all these ideas that are explained in our next sections here word by word. So really when people talk about the atonement, it's like the whole idea of what Christ has done. Now sometimes also atonement is defined as covering. Have you heard that before? Okay. So that's, that is really inaccurate. It may be partly true, but it is most definitely not only a covering as, as if God covers or papers over the sin that is dealt with at the cross. God actually addresses the sin completely, not covering it, but handling it according to his perfectly holy ethics by which sin must be punished. Okay, so just as much as God rewards righteousness, and he does, God is not unjust to forget your labor of love, Remember, Hebrews teaches us. So your good deeds done in the name of Christ and in faith and for the honor of God, they will not be forgotten. Just as much as God rewards good, he also punishes evil. And he's constitutionally, inside his constitution, bound to do that. 
Okay, so retribution as well as remuneration, or retribution as well as reward. And so God addresses that sin completely in terms of the the ethical nature of the atonement. The atonement doesn't just hide sin. It doesn't just cover it over. Am I, are, are you tracking with me? It doesn't just cover it. It actually pays for it. It actually takes the penalty for it and takes it away. So covering, mere covering is not a complete enough description of what the atonement is. Do you have a question, Drew? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so Drew's question has to do with the work of Christ versus the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I think the, an easy way to kind of distinguish the two is to say the work of Christ is not a covering you use the word atonement. It, it was an atonement. Yeah, yeah, I knew you did. So it's not a covering. It is the full, the full blast atonement, if you will. It's the whole thing and permanent, complete. The Old Testament sacrifices were real, but they provided only a temporary solution to the problem. They weren't complete. And as Drew has correctly said, the Old Testament worshipers always had a consciousness a conscience, if you will, dirty with sin. They'd always have to be coming back and, and doing these, uh, these uh, sacrifices year by year, week by week, day by day, morning and evening sacrifices all the time. They were not uh, that kind of complete work that Christ did. But even then, it's interesting, we'll see in uh, a moment, what the sacrifices did in the Old Testament was something real and substantial because there was a punishment for the sin that was committed. Okay? Now let me see if I've... Uh, have you all got your, uh, your worksheets filled out there in, ter- in terms of atonement? That's all there for you. So it's a, bro- a broad term, a big term that covers all the doctrine of what Christ has done on the cross. Uh, does not mean a covering. Uh, it can't mean a covering because sin has to be addressed has to be ethically addressed, has to be punished, has to be paid for. Now, since God can punish sin in his voluntarily substituted son, then he can also remove sin and its guilt entirely without papering it over. Okay, So this brings us to the next word, which is the next key theological idea, which is expiation. Expiation, or I'll put in there, you could also use the words remission and forgiveness, but I'll have you do the, use that big word, expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. It means removal. The removal of guilt by a blood sacrifice. Expiation is the solution for the sinner's guilt. Expiation is the solution for the sinner's guilt. Okay, so look back in your notes, and you saw the first problem, question number one of the, that's solved by the cross is guilt. The first solution here 
that I'm offering to you in this set of notes is expiation, which deals with that guilt. Now, guess what I'm going to do the rest of the notes? I'm going to walk down those five problems from, from guilt and wrath and bondage and enmity and death, and we're going to deal with all those one by one. What are the solutions to them? Okay, and so my notes aren't complete. I've, I've got a work in progress here, so we don't, we're not at the end yet, but we'll get there eventually. So expiation is removal. Once guilt is removed by transferring it to another, this allows God to forgive the sinner. Okay, so your guilt is removed, and then God can overlook your sin, if you will. He can not hold it against you is really what I want to say about that. Turn to Leviticus 4.20, and you'll see both of these ideas. You know, really, Leviticus is a hard book, but it's a good book because you see some of these concepts here uh, in it. Leviticus 4.20. Uh, there's a long bunch of text here about different offerings, the sin offering, grain offering, peace offering, uh, the myrrh offering, and so on. And in the midst of that, here's an example. It says in Leviticus 4, verse 20, And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So we're kind of skipping over the details which are specified earlier. No need to repeat them. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. He shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Now, my Bible is interesting. It has, he shall make a covering for them. A covering. Well, no, that's not quite accurate, but uh, we know that it's a very common idea. It's more than a covering. Um, but the idea is, so he, he makes atonement and it shall be forgiven. So atonement and forgiveness are not synonyms. They're close, they're very closely connected, but what's going on is God removes the guilt and then he forgives the person, doesn't hold the guilt of that sin against them anymore. So you see, what I'm trying to say is that when you're saved, it's not just that God, like... You know, you're guilty and you're still guilty and all that guilt still resides on your shoulders and, and God just kind of closes his eyes to it. You know, just pretends that you're not that anymore. No, he knows very well what you are, but the reality is there's no pretend. There's no um, fiction here. There's no make-believe. We don't, we don't do make-believe Christianity. What real Christianity is, is that God actually takes that guilt from you, places it upon Jesus, and then because that guilt is actually ethically dealt with, he can treat you as if you have not sinned because the guilt is removed. You see that? It's no pretend. It's real. A real expiation, a real removal of sin. Atonement is made first in Leviticus 4.20 and forgiveness is mentioned second. They go together as a package deal, so to speak, but calling out the two parts distinctly helps us remember the fact that God does not simply sweep sin under the rug. To do so would not be holy and would not make God a righteous judge because there would be sin out there that has victimized people and where those victims are basically ignored. Okay, in the, in the 
you know, U.S. justice system, whenever somebody is let off without any punishment, it does violence to the concept of justice because the victims of the crime are left with no, uh, what do you want to say, no satisfaction. There's no, there was nothing done. It's like their, their you know, business that was burned down, their stuff that was stolen, their child that was killed or whatever is worthless. Worthless. And what that does is it means that the judge who did that is a bad judge, is an immoral, unethical, sinful judge. But God, our God, is a righteous judge. He deals with sin perfectly. What the victim has suffered would be trivialized if it was not dealt with. Suppose somebody murdered uh, a family member. That sin has to be punished. It simply cannot be overlooked. If God merely overlooked sin or covered it in that kind of thin definition of, of atonement, it would be a major discredit to his holiness and would open him up to the charge of callousness. He doesn't care. It would also open the possibility that forgiveness is just pretend. It is not real if it's just an act of the mind that forgets the sin. Okay? You understand the difference? God just doesn't pretend or forget the sin. He actually transfers it to another. Now, often the ideas of expiation and forgiveness are combined together because once your sin is removed, the guilt of it's removed, then forgiveness is, uh, follows immediately behind. And so they're combined together under the concept of salvation in Christ. First is the removal, and subsequent to that, God does not, in fact, he does not hold sin against you, but you know what? When your guilt is transferred to Christ, not only God does not hold it against you, he cannot. He cannot hold it against you because there's an advocate who paid for the sin standing before God as if God could forget, the son would immediately remind him. He doesn't need any reminder, but you know what I'm saying. It cannot, it cannot be uh, forgotten. God does not forget. Um, Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. <clears throat> now, although forgiveness, well, let me say it this way, forgiveness is not immediately exercised at the cross for you, because you didn't exist then, okay, uh, you know, before you were born or before you profess faith, forgiveness was not exercised toward you at that time. Forgiveness does come from the cross when God grants the blessings of the atonement to a new believer in Jesus. When a person comes into Christ, the cross work benefits of his death are applied by God to him or her and the great exchange of guilt for righteousness, guilt for righteousness is is exchanged, is done, that occurs. This means now God considers your sin to be upon Christ, and this placates God's wrath. The sin is removed from you, the guilt is removed from you, the liability of punishment is removed from you, expiation. God does not hold sin against you any longer, and in fact cannot do so. So do you understand as a Christian that God is not holding your sin against you? Now, that doesn't mean that he might not chasten you for sin, even sin that's ongoing. 
God does not hold your sin against you. You are forgiven. That is why you can and must forgive other people. If you do not, Matthew 18 teaches us that you do not grasp the blessing of forgiveness yourself. I mean, if you understand that all that you've done against God and against Christ has been transferred to him, removed from you, and God treats you as a, as a child of God, freed from that guilt, acquitted, removed, it's removed from you, then how can you be a person that, if you're being made like Christ, is holding on to anger and bitterness and guilt and, 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 and uh, you know, grudges, against other people. How can you do that? It's totally incompatible with Christianity. And ultimately, when we think of, of what you know, sins maybe people have done against us or things that we have, you know, sometimes it's not what they've done against us, but it's how we've interpreted it or how we've addressed it or dealt with it in our minds. But you think about those things compared to what you did to Christ. Can't you take in your mind, their sins, and say, look, Christ will take care of that. Jesus will take care of that. That's not my business to be eating up myself on the inside out from that. That's expiation. All right, a couple more minutes. Um, justification. Um, and this is, I'm actually taking kind of a pause from my five problems. We've got the solution to uh, the, the guilt problem. I'm just going to take a side little uh, path here and talk about justification because I do think that fits under the heading of atonement. Entire books have been written on the subject of justification, especially, here's this issue, how one is justified. How one is justified. We should be able to uh, affirm that we are justified by grace, through faith, in Christ, with one important word appended to the end alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All three of those alones, all three of them. So Paul will say, you know, we're justified by faith. We're not justified by the works of the law. So because of the controversy between the, the, uh, the Catholic Church, the Western Church, and the Protestant Church on this issue, so many people have written on the subject of how one is justified. How one is justified. And that's really almost kind of the fountainhead of the Reformation, this whole idea of justification and Martin Luther's you know, new realization that, oh, I'm not justified by all of my penance and all of my satisfactions and absolutions and, and the monastery work and all of that. I'm justified by pure faith in Christ alone. Now, again, just like you weren't forgiven 2,000 years ago, you had to come to faith in Christ uh, to have that forgiveness operational. Same thing with justification. Now, some people try to make just, they try to place justification back at the cross, and they say, actually, you know, if you're a believer today, you were justified even before, and you were born, and you just didn't know that you were justified, and you had to figure it out. Well, the Bible is very clear that before you're saved, you're not justified. Not in, not, in some, not in a real way and not even in this kind of theoretical time warp way. 
is how I call it. Like, you didn't exist, but you're already justified. Yeah, I know God knows and he's infinitely uh, aware and, and everything is kind of a big present to him instead of a past, present, and future, but uh, that's, that's not how the Bible presents justification. The placement here of the concept in our notes in, in this order is, to, is not meant to suggest that every believer was already justified, but the provision was made for our justification. Think of Romans 4.25. He was delivered for our offenses, remember? And he was raised for our justification. But before I came to faith, I was not justified in God's sight. Let me uh, just reference a verse that I put in my notes, but I didn't type out in them. In Ephesians in chapter 2, it says in verse number 12, that at that time you... Now, Paul is speaking to believers, people mainly who are believers now. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Doesn't sound like they were justified, does it? Not at all. Okay, what does justified mean? It means to be imputed the righteousness of Christ and then to be declared righteous in God's sight. Okay, imputed the righteousness of Christ and declared so, and then, of course, treated that way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's a mouthful. You can write a whole book on that verse. I'll tell you, a whole chapter, certainly a whole dissertation, but one, in fact, there's a book called The Great Exchange. I think we have it in the library. If you're interested in this subject, you can read on that some more. Tom McParland liked that book. He would teach and use some of that from this pulpit when he was here. But uh, The Great Exchange is, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So he took our sin, transferred it to Christ. He took Christ's righteousness and transferred it to us. What magnanimous grace. A verse we'll be looking at this morning, Titus 3.7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's the word justified again. Now, I take it that this justification is, in effect, in effect, a miracle because Exodus 23.7 says, God will not justify the wicked. Remember that passage? Remember that concept? What if an earthly judge justifies the wicked today? We get all upset, right? Because it's wrong. Certainly when we talk about criminal acts, felonious things, it's wrong to justify the wicked. Wrong to justify the wicked. Now, part of the problem today is, of course, that there are some people who think that people who do wicked things actually are doing righteous things. So they don't think that they're justifying the wicked because they've defined away the problem by saying, well, what they did was actually righteous. I I don't know if I mentioned this last week. I don't mean to be awfully repetitive, but uh, somebody said that uh, those folks who burned the police precinct 
station in Minneapolis, I think it was, we're doing an act of pure righteousness. Because that was an expression against the system or an expression of, you know, uh, overpowering the uh, hegemony of the, you know, the, the upper class or whatever their, their concept is. So that's a pure righteousness to them. No, my friends, it's pure wickedness. Destruction of property, harming people, running around with no restraint. That's pure wickedness. So the difficulty, of course, as I've said, is that you know, wickedness is redefined as righteousness, and so then they think they're justifying the righteous when they're actually justifying the wicked. But Exodus 23 says, the judge of all the earth will not justify the wicked. So how is it that you are justified? You can't say, I wasn't wicked. You have to go another route. I was wicked, and I still sin. But somehow God has permitted my sins to be transferred to another so that he could justify me. But he didn't do so with no cost. He did so by condemning the righteous, almost. You know what I mean? He transferred the guilt of my sin to Christ, and he condemned the righteous one who became sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you can grasp that concept you will marvel at your salvation for all eternity. You will really understand the core of this idea of justification. The only people that are supposed to be justified are those who are righteous, Deuteronomy 25 says. But through justification, a wicked can ultimately be justified because the evil of their sin was imputed to another, a suitable sacrifice. Justification is wrought by Christ. It's received by by the sinner through faith, not by works. And I won't, I, we don't have time this morning, but I know you folks know this. The Bible is very clear that you're justified by faith, freely by his grace, justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, um, not justified by the works of the law, and so on and so forth. Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, um, a, big, a big question then is, uh, and we'll, this, I'll close with this for justification. A big question is, well, what about the book of James? Romans, very clear, you're justified by faith alone. Abraham, what did he find? You know, was he circumcised? Did he have to be circumcised to be justified? No, he wasn't circumcised yet. Justification and thus showing that even Gentiles could be justified without circumcision because Abraham himself was, Genesis 15:6. Circumcision wasn't given as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant until chapter 17 in the book some years later. But James 2 says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And so this has caused a huge problem because, you know, the... Western Church deals with this and says, well, look, it says justified by works. But we say, well, yeah, but Romans is very clear, justified by faith. What gives? What's the resolution to this? Well, I appreciate the resolution that was given by a former professor of mine, Dr. Compton, at the seminary in Detroit. And he wrote this uh, better than 20, almost 25 years ago. Uh, Paul and James, he says, necessarily viewed both justification and works from different perspectives. 
Paul meant by justification the initial act by which God imputes righteousness to the sinner based on faith alone. With me? James meant by justification the subsequent act of God whereby God confirms the righteous standing of the redeemed based on their works. When Paul claims that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works, he's referring to works that precede salvation. Conversely, when James insists on works as necessary to justification, he has in view works that follow and validate salvation. So don't let somebody kowtow you with this James versus Paul argument. There is a good answer. Now, you might not remember the exact wording of that answer when you come across that question again, but you dig out these notes or come and tell me and say, hey, can you help me dig out those notes, and I'll give that to you again. That explanation that Paul and James are back-to-back fighting two different enemies. Paul is fighting the enemy of salvation by works, that is, the idea of legalism. You know, he's hacking away at that, trying to help people understand you're not saved by works prior to salvation. And James is over here hacking away at another false doctrine, antinomianism. And they're both supporting each other, not fighting each other. Antinomianism doctrine is, you don't have to do good works. Just profess faith and go on and do whatever you want. And James is saying, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Don't tell me you have faith if you don't have works. Paul is saying, this is how you get to the point where you can have works. <laughs> that count for anything. And James is saying, you better have them. So works that precede, works that follow. There's no argument between Paul and James. They would have sat down and had a very nice time of coffee together in the local coffee shop and had no argument because they both understood. Just Paul Paul taught the same thing as James, in fact. Remember what Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 6? Shall we sin that, what, grace may abound? Absolutely not. That's ridiculous. So Paul taught the same thing James did. He just did it in other words. And so that's the resolution for that problem. But certainly to be justified, you must be justified by faith. You don't obtain it by works. So that's justification. We'll come back and we'll finish working on this, uh, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this doctrine of the cross When we see a cross, like the one on the wall behind me, or maybe we wear a chain around our neck with a cross on it, or we see one in the sign of a church, may we remember that it is not merely a horizontal and a vertical bar, but it represents the whole theology of the atonement which in, among other things teaches us that our guilt is expiated in the cross and the work of Christ and that we can be justified because on that, on that cross, sin was transferred to Jesus. He paid for it that was not his own so that we could have eternal life. Thank you for that and for all the rest that we'll look at in the time to come as you provide opportunity. Thank you for salvation in Christ. May we rejoice in it. May we marvel in it. May we appreciate it. May we give you gratitude for it. In Christ's name, amen.